And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Oh, my. So good. And it's so good to have you all with us today as we share together in worship and praise and prayer and as we share together in God's Word. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you turn there, uh, and just follow along with us this morning. I'm going to begin by reading just those first few paragraphs, but you can keep it open because we'll be referring back and forth to that throughout the service. Daniel chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in. but They couldn't read the writing. Or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his color changed. And his lords were perplexed. Let's pray. Father, we exalt you. We exalt you to the highest place. Because, Father, you alone are God. And because, Father, you alone are God, everything we have we owe to you. Every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. And even, Father, as we have come here this morning, if we've been thinking about the blessings that you have provided, Father, we give you praise. We exalt you. And Father, there are There are others that are here this morning that are really struggling. That there are things going on in their lives that they don't know how to handle. They don't know what to do. But Father, you do. You know exactly what is needed. And so you have drawn each and every person here. You have drawn them here. Because you have a message for them. and You want them, Father, You want all of us to depend on you, to draw our strength from you, to draw our wisdom from you. Father, teach us. Show us what you'd have us to do. If there's someone here this morning that does not know Jesus as Lord, I pray today will be the day of salvation for them. 
that they will indeed repent of their sins, come believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and have their sins forever washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ as they are baptized into Christ. What a great day for a new birth. Oh, Father, if there is somebody here who needs to make that decision, may your Spirit lead them to make that decision. Father, for those that are here this morning that are already children of, children of God, already know what it is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, I pray, Father, that for each of us, you will have your word have the effect that you desire. Be our teacher this morning. We've come here, all of us, to listen to you. Speak to us, Father. We're ready to listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12 tells of an occasion that Jesus warned his followers about having a wrong attitude toward possessions. He told them, watch out. Be on your guard against greed of all kinds because life is not about how much you have. And to drive home his point, he told a parable. The land of a certain rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, but God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Now, I, I doubt that Jesus was thinking about the main character of our text as he told that parable. But it sure fits. King Belshazzar had all the stuff a person could ever want. But his failure to acknowledge God cost him everything. From a historical point of view, Belshazzar is somewhat of a mystery. The, the Bible itself devotes very little space to him, and it's doubtful he would have been acknowledged at all, but for the fact he happened to be in power at a pivotal time in the history of the Jewish exiles. Although in our text... Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father. The Hebrew word can refer to anyone in a person's natural ancestry. Example, throughout the Old Testament books of history, David is consistently called the father of various kings, spanning all the way from Solomon, his natural son, to Josiah, a descendant of David born over 300 years after David died. It appears all that was intended by the author was to show that Belshazzar was a, was a descendant of Babylon's greatest king, and likely his grandson. Also, it should be noted, as, Daniel, as of Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar was ruling as a, as a co-regent with King Nabonidus, generally recognized as the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus, who reigned 17 years, spent the last 10 in his royal Residents, hundreds of miles from the city of Babylon in the city of Teman. He did this out of fear of negative, even 
violent repercussions over his attempts to realign which gods in Babylon were supreme. With Babylon City, the center of his opposition, he left Belshazzar there to rule in his place. There's a hint of this arrangement that's seen in our text when Belshazzar offers the place of third highest ruler in the kingdom to anyone who could read the mysterious writing on the wall. He offered the third highest because the first and the second were already taken by Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So, Daniel could rightly refer to Belshazzar as Babylon's king. And as such, Belshazzar, well, he would face the brunt of God's judgment. Apparently, none of the painful lessons that had been learned by his grandfather had been learned by him. His pride, his greed made him virtually blind to his fate. You know, during the very night that is described in Daniel chapter 5, the city itself was under siege by the mighty Persian army. Yet he was so confident that the walls surrounding that city were impregnable. He threw a party to show his citizens that there was nothing to worry about. But God had other plans. Before the night was through, he'd bring judgment on Belshazzar for three fatal mistakes. First of all, he failed to react appropriately to his circumstances. I love the story of the two country boys, Zeke and Ned. They got all excited because they had read this poster that said there was a company offering $5,000 apiece for live wolves. Unfortunately for them, they hunted all day and they didn't find any. So bedded down in the woods for the night, and they fell asleep. In the middle of the night, Zeke suddenly awoke to discover that their camp was completely surrounded by about 50 of the meanest wolves you've ever seen. Their teeth were bared in a ferocious snarl, and as they growled, their red eyes blazed in the night. Saliva just dripped from their hungry mouths. And at the sight of all this, Zeke poked Ned and whispered, Wake up, Ned! We're rich! Wealth certainly has a way of skewing one's perspective. It would appear the prestige, the power, the treasures accumulated from nearly a a century of military conquest caused the citizens of Babylon, including their king, to have a skewed perspective on their own security. Although the original walls of Babylon had been built over a thousand years earlier, when Nebuchadnezzar came to power, he encircled the city with three rings of walls 40 feet high. Greek historian Herodotus, he wrote that the walls were so thick that chariot races were held on top of them. And the city inside the walls occupied an area 200 square miles, roughly the same size as Chicago today. One might overlook the king's attempt to calm public fears with a display of hubris, a party. You can almost hear the proclamation, can't you? The proclamation to nervous citizens. The king has, he's got everything under control. He's got this. 
Even with that vast army that's outside the walls, even with all the enemy all around us, those walls themselves, they're so fortified, the soldiers guarding them are so well trained, there is absolutely no way that those walls can be breached. You are safe right where you are, just so long as you stay inside the walls. So let the Persians make all the noise they want. As for us, we can just sit back and relax. We can eat and drink and be merry and enjoy life in Babylon. Maybe the king was doing nothing more than a political ploy. But if that were true, you would expect, at the very least, preparation for some type of military strategy to ward off invaders. But there was none. He had so much faith in his walls... He even thought he could thumb his nose at the God of Israel, Yahweh. As part of his celebration, he did something not even his grandfather had had the nerve to do. He took the golden vessels that had been preserved from destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, and he began to use them in the worship of his gods to pay tribute to them, gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, God's form by the hands and the imagination of men. And it was at this very moment, at that very time, a hand appeared out of nowhere. A hand without a body attached. To make the writing clear to all the fingers of this disembodied hand, etched the words in the plaster on the wall opposite the lampstand. There could be no mistake. What everyone thought they saw, they all indeed saw. Problem was, what they saw was written in a language that none of them could understand. So, Belshazzar called the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. I love the fact that he shouted it. He said it very loudly. He called all the wisest of the wise in his kingdom. Surely they could unravel this mystery on the wall. But they left, shaking their heads, having not a clue either of what was written or its meaning. Then verse 10. The queen, or probably better yet, the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit Knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems. They were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So the king did just that, and he brought Daniel before them all. He explained to Daniel the situation about the writing on the wall, the failed efforts of his best men to interpret its meaning. The king said that he had heard of Daniel's reputation, and he was about to put that reputation to the test. If Daniel could just tell 
what that writing was, if he could just tell what it means, he'd be greatly rewarded. He'd be clothed with purple. He'd have a chain of gold around his neck. And he would be made the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel's response, verse 17. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king. And make known to him its interpretation. But I want to point out, that's not all that Daniel did. Before getting to the message on the wall, Daniel got personal. He reminded Belshazzar of the greatness of his predecessor, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. How at the height of his glory, his heart was lifted up. His spirit hardened by pride. How he was brought down from his throne. How he was humbled. Driven from among men to live like an animal until he acknowledged that the Most High God, by the way, the very God that this king had just mocked, that this God alone rules all the kingdoms of humankind. Had Belshazzar learned anything from his grandfather's experience? Not one bit. Verse 22, I believe, is significant. I want you to underline a phrase. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He knew. He had heard the stories. Who knows? Maybe he was a a child in the palace when all this was happening. He couldn't plead ignorance when it came to the experiences of his grandfather or the God who had humbled him. He knew better, and he did what he did anyway. Verse 23, You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of which do not see or hear or know. Now listen to this next line. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You want to talk about a smackdown? That's what Daniel gave Belshazzar. All because of a second fatal mistake. He failed to remember lessons from the past. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar was not done in private. It was a very public humiliation that was done to one of the most powerful men on earth in his day. We don't know how long he was kept under the stroke of Yahweh. Daniel chapter 4, if you go back, you will read that the length of time that he was driven from among men uh, was, quote, until seven periods of time. And nowhere is that defined, what that seven periods of time is. How long was it? Was it days or weeks or months or longer? However long it was, it made an impact on Nebuchadnezzar. So much so that you might remember, chapter 4 is actually an open letter written to all the world about how Nebuchadnezzar 
had come to believe in God. I, I guess you could say that his letter, um, the theme of his letter was, don't mess around with the God of Israel. And if you go back and read it, you'll find that very thing. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven. That word host means armies. So among all the armies, all the, all the angels of heaven, all the warriors of heaven, God does what he wants. He does what he wants among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, I love this phrase, none can stay, next word, his hand. None can stay his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? And then you'll remember the king closed with these words, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, listen, Belshazzar, those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That is the God Belshazzar chose to mock. Now, at that point, step into Belshazzar's shoes, would you, just for a moment? Wouldn't you expect at that very moment that Belshazzar would have fallen on his knocking knees and cried out to God for mercy? It would have been a really good idea. But he didn't. Although he knew what had happened to his grandfather, although he knew the power of Daniel's God, he persisted in one last fatal mistake. He failed to recognize his own need to repent. Daniel continued, verse 24, Then from his presence, that is God's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, mine, tekel, and parson. What does that mean? Mine. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And I want you to notice that the word is repeated, which in prophetic language means that the matter has been firmly established. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez or parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, the very armies that at that present moment encircled Babylon. Once again, we have a moment that just screamed for a repentant response. Instead, the king simply followed through with what he told Daniel he was going to do. He clothed him in royal purple. He placed a gold chain around his neck. And then Belshazzar declared that Daniel was the third highest ruler in the kingdom, a kingdom which, by the way, before morning would be completely overthrown. Don't misunderstand. It was not that God failed to get Belshazzar's attention. That hand coming out of nowhere, riding on the wall, turned his legs to jelly and just about made him die of fright. But it's one thing to be afraid of your circumstances. It's quite another to have fear for the Lord who is God over those circumstances. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that there is a kind of response, a kind of sorrow over sin that doesn't really accomplish very much except regret. It's a, it's a sorrow over the painful consequences of one's actions, a, a fear of having to go through those consequences ever again. But it doesn't really change the sinner on the inside. So it doesn't really change the heart. It doesn't change the mind. It just leaves the person in regret. But there's another kind of sorrow, Paul says, a sorrow over sin that is a godly sorrow. And that kind of sorrow convicts a person of his or her need for God. See, it's, it's not just about the things you do. It's about the one in whom you put your faith, your trust, day by day and moment by moment. It is how we live. Paul says it, it's not just becoming a Christian by faith. It's doing Mondays by faith. It's going to work by faith. It's going to school by faith. It's raising your kids by faith. It, it's, it's loving your spouse by faith. See, it's all by faith. It is, it is a walk. It's a lifestyle. That kind of faith, oh my, that changes the mind. That changes the heart. So that rather trusting in our own devices, we put our trust in God. We put our faith in God. And you look at Belshazzar, and the thing that becomes most obvious here. There was no change. There was no repentance. There was no godly fear. And so, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 42 years old, or 62 years old. History tells us that the Persian army actually took that city in the dead of night. They dug canals to divert the river that ran under the walls of Babylon. And they, in doing so, were able to lower the water level, which allowed for some troops to get through and open up the gates. And the citizens were so shocked, they were so taken by surprise, and frankly so fed up with their Babylonian kings, that they were defeated without a battle even being fought. I, I'm not sure if maybe as you've been sitting here and you've heard this message in this passage and you compare it to the other four, maybe you're thinking to yourself what I've been thinking, and that is that Belshazzar's, he, he's one of those characters that it's rather easy for Christians to overlook. Of course he did what he did, so he got what he got. That's what happens to those who forget God, and, and then we just kind of move on. But I, I want to remind you that there are lessons for all of us from this foolish king. First of all, whatever your circumstances, God expects you to respond appropriately. So you don't have to be a king to have God care about what you do. He cares about how you respond. He cares about how you handle life day by day. 
He is a Father who is always with us, who sees everything that we do, even down to our thoughts. So he cares how we respond. He cares about us so much that he has even given us, what? His Holy Spirit, right? His Holy Spirit to live inside us, to guide us, to grow us, to make us more like Jesus. Here's your plumb line. Here's your guideline. What you do and what you say should look and sound more like Jesus every day that you live. If it doesn't, you need to check back in with God and see what he has to say to you. But listen to him. Make sure that whatever your circumstances, you respond the way a child of God is supposed to respond. Second, God expects us to remember the lessons from the past. Whether it's the past of others, we've all got people in our lives, right? That we look back and we think, what would so-and-so do, right? You, You can fill in your own blank, right? Come up against a difficult situation, come up against a, 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 a pressing temptation, and you, and you think to yourself, if, if, if this person were here, I think of my dad, I think of my grandparents, I, I think of individuals in my life that taught me, that showed me how to do life. We've got those people in our life, and God put them there. That didn't happen by accident. That didn't happen just because you showed up one day. God looked at your life. He said, this is what you will need to see. This this is the example. This is the lesson I want you to learn. You realize, I am right now at 59, almost 60 years old. I am living life from examples and lessons that I was taught 50 years ago. And those things are still being applied to my life. He expects us to learn from the past, whether it's the past of others or our own past. Remember this. God takes you where he takes you on purpose. You are not where you are by accident. So I would encourage you to be observant. (laughs) I would encourage you to take good notes. There will be a test. It's almost a guarantee. Finally, repentance is not simply an event in time. It's not something that you just do to get saved. Because in case you haven't noticed, how many of you are saved this morning? How many of you? Okay, okay, good, good, good. Have you sinned since you got saved? Anybody? Anybody? Some of you, two hands should go up. Right? Yeah. Repentance. Repentance. It's not just about an event in time. It is a lifestyle of transformation. The mind is constantly being tutored by God being shown what to do. The Spirit is constantly speaking, teaching you how to love. I hope you love better now than you did when you first became a Christian. I hope you forgive better. I hope you show more mercy. I hope there's more grace that just spills out of your heart. Because that's growth. 
And that only comes when you recognize there are things in my life that shouldn't be. And so you take those things and you put them behind you. You give them to God. And you say, God, replace this junk. Replace this mess. Give me your treasure. Because that's what I need. And that's what the Spirit offers. That's what the Spirit provides. Our minds are constantly being transformed. You know, the old saying is true. When one becomes a Christian, it doesn't make him sinless. But it should make him sin less and less and less. Okay. If you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, stop it. You need help with that. You come and you see one of us. You come, uh, you, you come up to one of us. We'll pray for you. We'll help you. We'll be there. You need to call somebody. You call us. We're a family here. This is not just a group that meets together on Sunday morning. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters, right? Are we? Okay. So you got something going on in your life. You, you have this thing that just has wrapped itself around your heart, and you just can't get rid of it. The Spirit of God who lives in you is telling you, you can stop it as a child of God. You do not have to live in bondage. If you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, stop it. If you're not doing something you should be doing, start it. And start today because the best day to do what Jesus says to do it's today. You need Jesus in your life. You need your sins washed away. Let today be the day of salvation. But whatever you need, whatever God is calling you to do, I urge you as your brother in Christ, do it today.